Please open your Bibles to Saul, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 10. And we're going to be jumping right into the middle of the story of where Saul was being selected as the first king of Israel. Last week, we saw him hopelessly looking for his donkeys and haphazardly finding Samuel and asking him for help. But instead of helping him find his donkeys, Samuel instead told him, your donkeys have already been found, they've already returned home, and I would like you to have the seat of honor at my table. And then he invited Saul to stay the night. And over and over, Samuel provides little hints, little windows into the fact that Samuel already knows that Saul is the individual that God had selected as the first king of Israel. The next morning, Samuel dropped any pretense of subtlety, and he poured a jar of oil over Saul's head, anointing him informally as king. And that is where we are going to start off in our story this morning. So please follow along as I read from 1 Samuel chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today... You will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found. And now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, what shall I do about my son? Then you will go on from there up until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where where there is a Philistine outpost, and as you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you uh, to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart, and all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man who lived there answered, And who is their father? So it became a saying, Is Saul also among the prophets? After Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. Now Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, Where have you been? Looking for the donkeys, he said. But when he saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, Tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul replied, He assured us that the donkeys had been found. But... He did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mitzpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God. 
who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, no, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and your clans. When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, Yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and they brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king! Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, How can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to the Scripture today, we acknowledge that you use the Word of God to transform us, that this that we have just read is powerful and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut between bone and marrow, soul and spirit, to get into the very deepest parts of who we are. And we ask the Lord that you would do that today, that by your word, you would cause us to understand this text, but also, Lord, I pray that you would help us to apply this text, to live this text, to, to understand Christ through this text, and to love Him more because of this text. Lord, I pray that in seeing Him clearly, we would love Him more fervently and live for Him more faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Samuel 10 is a challenging chapter to understand. And I think, I could be wrong, but I think in the years that I have been preaching, this is the most difficult chapter in regards to a lot of theological and linguistic challenges to study. There are some really theological, tough theological questions and difficult translation questions and some really tricky stuff about Saul's position before the Lord. But all of these questions are a lot easier to answer and understand if we keep the big picture in mind. Israel has asked for a king like the nations. So God is going to give them a king that is like the nations. The name Saul means asked for, and God is going to give them exactly what they asked for. And Paul fit, I'm sorry, Saul fits the external picture of what they were looking for but he also fits exactly the description that they gave. A king like the nations. Inwardly, he was just like those other men. They wanted someone who looked like a king, who was regal, who would strike terror into the hearts of their enemies. A tall man fits that bill. They were looking at outward appearance. Today, we're going to take a closer look at Saul's heart. Last week, I told you that I believe Saul started out as a bad king, and he only got worse as he gained more power. I believe that even more strongly now than I did a week ago. But there are two main arguments made by those who believe that Saul was actually a good king, even a saved king, and that over time he lost his salvation and lost his standing with the Lord. First, they look at the text and say that Saul was given a new heart. 
And secondly, they look at the text and say, and he prophesied. But both of those arguments are found here in 1 Samuel 10, and both of them, in my opinion, are examples of terrible hermeneutics. So what we're going to do today is simply ask and answer six questions that I hope will help us to uncover what's going on in the heart of Saul and also to see how he compares and contrasts with our Savior Jesus Christ. So question number one, what does it mean that God gave Saul a new heart? Question number two, what does it mean that Saul prophesied? Question number three, what is the purpose of casting lots if Saul had already been anointed? Question number four, how does God introduce Saul's selection as king? Question five, how does Saul respond to being selected as king? And question six, how do the people respond to Saul's selection as king? Let's begin with the toughest question, the first one. What does it mean that God gave Saul a new heart? Samuel has just told Saul that he's going to be the next king, the first king of Israel. He anointed him privately as an outward symbol that God had chosen him for this role. Now, we don't know this for certain, but it seems as though Saul was probably skeptical of what Samuel was telling him. How do we see that in the text? Well, consider the way Samuel responds to him. He immediately tells him, there's going to be a lot of evidence that my word is true. He looks at Samuel and he tells him exactly what he's going to encounter that day. Exactly the people he's going to encounter. Exactly what those people are carrying. Exactly what those people are going to offer him. Exactly what they are going to say. And what's even more wild is that Samuel went so far, not just to say what you're going to encounter out there, but he also tells Saul what Saul is going to do in response. Even the most skeptical person in the world would look at the external events. They would say, okay, yeah, maybe he, this was all set up. He sent those people walking down in those numbers. He set those people as a plant there at the well. He had them carrying those things in those numbers. Maybe it was just a grand setup or a serendipitous coincidence. But when a prophet like Samuel tells you what you are going to do, and it's something far outside of your character to do it, and you actually end up doing it under the compulsion of the Lord, that seems like compelling evidence that Saul would have no choice but to accept. Yes, God chose me as king. After Samuel finished speaking, verse 9 adds a very interesting line. <clears throat> it says, When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. What does that mean? Well, let's first identify what the text is definitely not saying. Some people link the changing of Saul's heart with what Samuel prophesied earlier up in verse 6. Look at verse 6 again with me. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. So let's just be sure to get the timeline in order here. When did Saul receive a new heart? Well, of course, that happened as soon as he turns away from talking with Samuel. But when did Samuel foretell that he would be turned into another man. He said, that's not going to happen until you meet a troop of prophets who is, and you're going to join them in prophesying. And if you're following the passage, that doesn't happen until Saul reaches Gibeah, which would have been at least a half day's journey away. When it says that Saul was turned into another man, it's simply saying that he was acting completely out of character. He was turned into doing something that he never in and of himself would have done. He was unrecognizable 
to the people that knew him. That sentiment is accentuated in verses 11 and 12 when it says all the people who previously knew him saw how he prophesied with the prophets. The people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Like, who is this guy? What in the world happened to him? Everyone knew, that knew Saul thought that this was incredibly unusual, that he, this guy of all people, would be speaking the word of the Lord. Now, we're going to get into the prophecy element of that in a minute, but the bottom line that you need to see right now is that this is not what it means when it says that the Lord gave him a new heart. What I was always taught when I was growing up is the line that he was given a new heart was an indication that Saul must have been a saved man. And you know what? I am sympathetic to the people who come to that conclusion because I can see how anyone, even somebody who is thoroughly versed in the Bible, could come to that conclusion because salvation is often correlated with a transformation of the heart. For example, in the Old Testament, salvation is described as circumcision of the heart. And David will later speak of repentance by using the phrase, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And the new covenant promises that are described by the prophets are those that have taken a heart of stone and turning it into a heart of flesh. Well, the opposite of salvation in the Old Testament is talked about as hardening the heart, like we see in the case of Pharaoh. Then later, when we get into the New Testament, we read about being made into a new creation, which sounds very similar to this. And we're told that in order to be saved, you must confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. So it makes sense that we would come across a statement like that and immediately assume that it is saying the same thing, that it's speaking about salvation. But in order to truly understand what's taking place here, we have to use a couple of important hermeneutical tools. Remember, this verse was not originally written in English. It was originally written in Hebrew, a language very different from our own. And the word that is used here when it says that Saul is given a new heart is used in many other places within the Old Testament. But it is never, never not even once, used to describe anything even closely approximating salvation. How do we know what this word means? How do we identify what a word means? Well, in the Bible, you compare it to how else it is used in other places. You look at the other locations where we see that word to help us identify the meaning of the word. We see how it's used across the scope of the Old Testament. One of my former professors, Jim Hamilton, really helped me understand this by showing how the same word is used in several contexts. And I'm going to give you just a couple of them here, very briefly. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 5, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, is said to have been given a new heart. Same exact word that is used here. And what was his heart given to do? It's after they had already released the Israelites. They had made their way down to encamp by the Red Sea. And Pharaoh's heart was transformed within him to go chase them and to enslave them once again. He was given a new heart, but not the kind to do God's good will, but to fight the enemies of Israel. Hosea 11.8 it uses the same word to describe the heart of God being changed towards the Israelites. It describes God now preparing to judge the people of Israel. Certainly, God does not get converted. This is not talking about salvation. But here's my personal favorite example. I think it's the most explicit and clear. It's Psalm 105, 23 through 25. And here's what it says. Then Israel came to Egypt. 
Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. Now, here's the key line. Here's our word. He turned their hearts. That's the same word that we see about Saul. He turned their hearts to do what? To hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. This is certainly not talking about these pagan nations being saved. It's talking about them turning against the people of Israel. That's the kind of heart that they were given. This obviously does not mean that God gave them salvation. Saul's new heart is not an indication of salvation because that's simply not the way that word is ever used. If the author wanted to say that he had been transformed in a saving way, there are many Hebrew words that he could have used to accomplish that, but he doesn't. Instead, he is simply informing us that there was some kind of a change of heart or mind in Saul. Not that God saved him, but that leads us to the question, what kind of change did God make? Well, that's still a tricky question to answer. And if you read 10 different commentaries, you're going to get 11 different answers about that. <clears throat> and it's unclear to me, but I think the direction that I believe the most is that Saul was given a mind to understand all of the things necessary to do as king. In other words, that he was given a heart that was able to accomplish the task or the role or the responsibilities of being the king. In other words, when Saul fails, it's not God's fault because God gave him the tools right up front, right after he was anointed to do exactly what he was called to do. Therefore, God cannot be blamed for his failures. This phrase about being given a new heart is more like what we see in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. It's a great verse. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The Lord turned Saul's heart in this moment. We don't know exactly what the Lord did in his heart. Never approximates godliness. But the Lord did something. But it certainly was not salvation. Which brings us to our second question. What does it mean that Saul prophesied? Prophesying means speaking the word of the Lord. Sometimes it included people telling future events. Sometimes they would speak about things that would happen many thousands of years in the future. Sometimes it didn't, did not. Sometimes it was just speaking what God had to say about himself. It's incredibly interesting to me that when we get to the beginning of 1 Samuel, the very outset of the book, there are no prophets. No one is speaking the word of the Lord. And it's not until Samuel comes on the scene that the word of the Lord comes back into the land and that he is this bright and shining light in the, in the land. Well, now, if you remember the very beginning of chapter 9, it said, now Samuel was old. By the time this one man went from being a child to being an old man, there are already random troops of musical prophets making their way through the countryside that's a significant change that I think we could probably easily overlook. Samuel was effective in ministry. The Lord used him to bring about at least some level of teaching revival in the land. And may the Lord do that here for us. May he raise up on Long Island in this place that is so often void of the gospel. May he raise up people that will carry the word of God to the next generation so that by the time all of us are gone this place will look a lot more like heaven than it does right now. Either, either way, we don't know exactly here um, where these guys come from, but wherever they come from, whatever Samuel did to raise them up, 
we're told that Saul bumps into this musical group of prophets, and just like Samuel said that he would, he begins to prophesy. Look at verse 10 again. It says, When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And then look at this, this other onlooker, what he says. And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Speaking about all the other people. Like, okay, clearly Saul's the son of Kish. Where did these other people come from? And therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? Now it's clear that Saul did not have a reputation of a prophet before. Nobody thought of him that way. He was the farthest example from somebody who would communicate God's word. By the response of the people who knew him, it seems like that was the last thing they expected to come out of his mouth. So much so that they literally turned this into a common saying in the land. So that whenever somebody did something that was incredibly out of character, they would say, is Saul also among the prophets? So that you're little teenage boy starts cleaning his room by himself. No one asks him. You walk in, everything's in place. The bed is made. Is Saul also among the prophets? Shock! Where did this come from? Some people argue that the fact that the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul and that he spoke the true words of prophecy here, that that's an indication of genuine salvation. Well, here are some examples why that's not necessarily true. You see, first of all, And most significantly, God is going to take the Holy Spirit away from Saul in chapter 16. And he's going to do so in a permanent way. It will never come back. The Holy Spirit will never come back to Saul after that point. So this is a blessing that is temporary. It's also important for us to see that the same terminology that is used here is used to describe what would happen to Samson, who was a saved man, by the way, But Samson would have the Holy Spirit rush upon him, and then he would do things that he physically otherwise could not do. Samson, regardless of how he is often depicted in children's Bibles, probably did not look like a strong man. He probably looked less athletic than I do. Yet, he would do things like fight off an entire army with a jawbone of a donkey. How did he do that? Because the Holy Spirit would rush upon him and would change his physical capabilities. Speaking true prophecies also does not indicate salvation. Two of the most wicked villains in the entire Bible prophesied the true word of the the Lord. Balaam from the Old Testament. He was hired to curse the Israelites. That was his job. He took money to do it. But he was only able to speak what the Lord told him to say. He was only able to say whatever words God put into his mouth. He spoke true prophecies, four of them, which are recorded for us in the scriptures and that point forward to the coming Messiah himself. Prophecies about Jesus came out of the mouth of a man who hated God and was attempting to kill the covenant people of God. Later on, of course, if you know the story of Balaam, He's not able to curse them, so he says, just get them to curse themselves. And so he sent prostitutes into the the camp, and the people ended up bringing curses upon themselves with their disobedience. Let's jump forward to the New Testament. Very famous character, Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest when Jesus was crucified. 
Caiaphas was the high priest who ultimately signed the death sentence from the Jewish side for Jesus. Caiaphas, the high priest who intentionally killed the Son of God, listened to what John 11 has to say about him. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. <laughs> Sounds like a really nice guy. <laughs> Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John puts this really important parenthetical insertion where he says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into the children of God who are all who are scattered abroad. Do you see what is taking place here? According to this passage, Caiaphas spoke God's word about Jesus dying as a substitute for all of God's people. Yet Caiaphas does not repent. Caiaphas does not believe. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and then what is the very first evidence they give? Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Prophesying the word of God does not indicate there is genuine salvation. It just means that God has chosen to use them in that moment to speak his truth. Saul prophesied in this moment, yes, and he will never do it again. And even though he spoke God's word, he is never going to obey it. He is an ungodly, unsaved man. Now, you might be wondering, why in the world do you care so much about this point? Why are you belaboring this and pushing so hard? Because the way that you view Saul in this chapter and moving forward is a reflection of how you view the doctrine of salvation itself. Let me explain. If you believe that Saul was a saved man and that he remained a saved man even to the point when he took his own life, then your view of salvation is deficient because you must believe that faith is completely divorced from actually transforming. Saul never displays true repentance. He never shows interest in honoring the Lord. He never obeys God's command. He is going to try to kill David. He's going to, he's going to actually kill innocent priests. He's going to even attempt the life of his own son. Then later he'll go to a witch, and eventually he will kill himself. There is no evidence in his life that he had any kind of spiritual growth. He looks worse at the end than he does at the beginning. There is no transformation. There is no sanctification. There is no good growth or fruit that would indicate faith. Faith without works is dead. If you think that all the way through Saul is a believer, then you must not believe that salvation includes sanctification. If, on the other hand, you believe that Saul was a saved man, but that he somewhere along the line just lost his salvation, then you must believe in a works-based salvation. How so? Because you would have to argue that the only way Saul lost his salvation 
was by failing to do the good works that God set out for him to do. In other words, yeah, sure, God gave him a new heart, but then as soon as he had the opportunity, he lost it. Well, guess what? If that was possible, all of us would have lost our salvation immediately after receiving it and never gained it back again. Or perhaps you would look at this a different way and you would simply argue that salvation worked differently under the old covenant than it does under the new covenant. Well, that would defy all of the writings of the New Testament about this particular subject, especially the writings of Paul that describe salvation as being exactly the same under the old covenant as it is in the new, that we are all saved by grace through faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul makes the entire argument. Romans chapter 1 through 9, the entire argument is that you are saved by grace through faith, not by works, exactly as they were in Abraham. That's the exact same way we get saved. They were looking forward to the cross in the Old Testament. We were looking back. That, we are looking back. That's the only distinction. So if you believe that Saul was a saved man, then you're really going to struggle to understand what God is going to do in his life. If you believe that he is a godly individual, you are going to be very confused when the Lord sends an evil spirit to torment him. I'm stressing this point because if we are telling people that they need to get saved, we better know what it means to get saved. We better know what that looks like. We better know how that works. Saul is an unsaved man, and he's going to act like an unsaved man for the rest of 1 Samuel. I believe with all my heart that he was not a saved man. But whether you agree with me or not, the more pressing question for you is whether you are saved, whether you are going to stand before the Lord. You see, Saul does some things externally that made people think highly of him. He's going to win a battle here or there. He looks outwardly like a king. You might have a lot of things externally going for you that make you appear to others like you are a saved individual. But you're not supposed to worry about convincing those people around you. Who cares in eternity if you fool everyone here because you can't fool God? Do you really know Him? Have you truly repented? Have you turned from your sin? Because there is good news. You see, anyone, anyone who turns to Christ and repents, will be saved. He is there as a loving Savior. He is there as a king who accepts sinners. He is a king that has more mercy than you can comprehend, and he is graciously ready to give it. We have a Savior who welcomes the vile and the wretched and the poor like we sang about today. We have a king who forgives sinners. Every one of us in this room deserves to be under the wrath of God in eternity forever, suffering the judgment of our own vile works. But every single one of us in this room who trusts and believe in the name of Jesus will be saved. Our third question today is this. What is the purpose of casting lots if Saul has already been anointed? Look, Samuel already knows. Samuel knows Saul's the king, right? He knows, and Saul already knows that he's the anointed king, because he's the one who's still probably trying to figure out how to get the coloration back into his hair from the olive oil that was there. But the Lord still led Samuel to have a ceremony in which they cast lots for what tribe and then what family and then which person is going to be the actual king. Let me just pause for a moment 
and say that this is incredible evidence that God's word always holds true. Think of it like this. Every year, our country goes through this really weird season, March Madness. It's when anyone who cares even slightly about college basketball prints off a bracket, and they fill in all 64 spaces, and they determine who they think is going to win each and every one of those 63 different games. Well, the odds are ridiculously hard. No one ever gets them all right, because guess what? The odds of getting the correct answer on all 63 games is one in nine quintillion. Look, I don't know if you're a math person. I'm not. I don't even know what that means. All I know is that it's a one with 18 zeros after it. I've never seen anything that there's nine quintillion of them. One professor of mathematics explained it in a way that was helpful for me to understand. He said that it's like looking at a timeline that's 292 billion years long and then trying to select out the one second that is correct. That's just selecting 63 games. They just took the entire nation of Israel and said, let's cast lots and figure out which tribe and then which family and then which clan and which one of you in the clan and which, which one of these lines is right and then till it gets all the way down to Saul. The odds were sacked against him. The dice, if they were operating under natural forces, would have selected anybody else. But as Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. This public ceremony was a way to display to all the people of Israel, this is indeed God's chosen king. Which brings us to question four. How does God introduce Saul's selection as king? This is really important. Look again at verse 17 and listen to the way that God speaks to the people leading up to the casting of lots. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzvah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Let me ask you, does God sound happy there? Obviously not. Nobody who is happy with their circumstances would say something in this way. It doesn't sound like he's rewarding them. Do you know what I hear in this passage? I hear what it sounds like when I am disciplining one of my children. When they do something that they should not, and I have to verbally correct them, and as I am correcting them, I end up with this kind of tone sometimes. Do you realize what you've done? Do you know that I've told you and how I've helped you? I've given everything you need to succeed, and you just didn't do it. That's what God sounds like here with the people, and God is going to do exactly what I'm talking about. He is going to discipline the people by giving them Saul as their leader. Question number five. How does Saul respond to being selected? Look, Saul knew this was coming. This was not a surprise to him. He knew that the Lord had set him apart to be the king. He made it, Samuel made it so clear by giving him all those proofs with all those prophecies, with all of those people that actually come true, even to the point where Saul's like probably saying in his own heart, he said, I'm going to prophesy. I'm not going to prophesy. There's no way I'm going to do that. And then he gets to that point, and there's nothing he can do but burst out in 
the Lord's word. But he obviously doesn't want the position. When he returned home to his family, he doesn't even tell them that he was anointed. He tells them, yeah, Samuel said, the donkeys are home. He doesn't even mention the fact that he was given this ceremony privately by Samuel, telling him he would be the next king. He intentionally avoided any conversations about the promises that he would rule over the people of God and fight their enemies. I can just imagine the conversation with whoever was responsible for doing Saul's laundry, where they were like, what are these stains? What, what is this oil in your clothes? How did you even do that to your shirt? Then, when the selection ceremony took place at Mitzvah, the exact same place where the people first demanded a king, Saul disappears. They pull his straw out of the hat, or however the lots were taken, and they looked all over for him, and they couldn't find him. So what do they do? It says that they go to the Lord and ask the Lord. Verse 22, so they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? In other words, where is he? Is he, is he just still making his way here? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. <laughs> the entire nation is waiting on pins and needles to figure out who their first king is going to be, and Saul is hiding in a suitcase. <laughs> this should have been the first sign to the people, Saul is not the kind of king that you should want. This is not humility, by the way. When God commands you to do something, running away is called rebellion. Saul is going to take the throne eventually, yes. But this attitude of running from his actual calling is going to be the hallmark of Saul's disappointing reign. He is never going to do the things he is actually supposed to do. He is going to spend the rest of his life, in fact, a large portion of his life, chasing down David, something he is definitely not called to do. Now, we don't know exactly why he was hiding. We do know that it has something to do with the fact that he doesn't want the job, but we don't know why he didn't want it. Maybe he was afraid. Maybe he was just being lazy. Like, that sounds like a lot of work. Maybe he was afraid of commitment or responsibility. Maybe he knew he didn't have the wisdom to do the job. Uh, maybe he just didn't trust God to give him the help that he needed. Look, nobody in this room can perfectly relate to Saul. Nobody here has been given the responsibility to be king. None of us. I'm pretty thankful, actually, about that. God has given you, however, positions of authority. He's given you positions of responsibility. Do you respond to them like Saul does? If you're a father, look, you're not a king. Absolutely not. But you are called to rule over your household well. God has given you an incredible responsibility to nurture your spouse and your children in the Word. Are you doing that? Or are you hiding in the luggage? Mothers and fathers... Consistency in disciplining your children is really difficult. Maybe the most difficult thing about raising children is being consistent in discipline. Are you doing that? Are you just giving up and hiding in the luggage? Faithful training in the Word is difficult. Are you doing that? Or are you hiding in the luggage? Guarding against the influence of the world is hard. There's a never-ending war of everything you can imagine, knocking on the door of your house, trying to get in, trying to make its way into your children's eyes and ears and their minds through social media and friends and phones and texts and movies and music and you name it. Are you fulfilling your calling to guard them? Or have you just given up and hidden in the luggage? Church members, you have responsibilities. 
You have covenanted together with the people of God here at Levittown Baptist Church. Being a faithful believer in a local church, that also includes responsibilities. The very simplest of those responsibilities just includes attending, just being here when we are having church services. We're told not to forsake the gathering together of the brethren. Just being here is a huge encouragement to others. If you say, look, nobody's going to miss me, no big deal, I'll just not go this week, not feeling up to it, had a tough day, you are actually stealing from your brothers and sisters the encouragement that they would gain from you being there. When someone is in need or sick, are you quick to help out, to make them a meal, or are you hiding in the luggage, just hoping somebody else is going to step up? Let them draw another straw. What are you called to do as a member? What gifts has the Lord given you? Well, centrally, you are called to love the body of Christ. Encourage one another with the word. Associate yourself with the lowly. Bear one another's burdens. Confess your sins to one another. Forgive one another. Comfort one another. Spur one another on towards love and good works. These things all take effort. None of them happen accidentally. You're not called to be a king, but you have been given a higher calling than Saul did. You have been called to serve the king. Are you doing that? Or are you just running from your responsibilities like Saul and hiding away in the luggage? Let me give you an excellent example of what it looks like to accept responsibilities that the Lord puts in front of you. We recently went through a bit of a change in our youth ministry. Not everybody, I think, is fully aware of that yet. Earlier this month, just 10 days ago, Francesco taught his last youth lesson. And he did a great job as a youth leader in many ways, but he has entered into a new stage of life. He's got a union job in the city that is just, if anybody here works in the city or works a union job, you know that that can be overwhelming and exhausting. He's just gotten engaged, and so he's moving into a new stage of life, and it's just not feasible to carry out all the responsibilities of youth ministry well on top of all of that. So can we just first, can we just thank Francesco and encourage him for his ministry? Amen. Amen. Now, as soon as I finished my discussion with Francesco, and, and um, we had talked about him stepping out into, into uh, another form of ministry here in the church, I texted my fellow elders, Mike and Steve, as well as Jonathan Rodriguez, and um, I just told them kind of what's going on and what to expect, and that we need to start looking now for a new youth minister. And practically immediately... Jonathan Rodriguez wrote back and said, quote, I can help with leading youth for now until you find another guy. I don't know how long that was. I should have checked, but probably a minute or two. He's already jumping on the responsibility. This past Friday, Jonathan led the youth group, and I was told he did a great job. But he didn't wait for someone else to volunteer. He didn't hide in the luggage. He just stepped up, and he got to work. And I know that he probably hates that I'm saying these things right now and hates that I am pointing him out. Don't look at him, he's turning red. <laughs> but he truly is an example of faithfulness. That's what it looks like to be a godly man. That's what it looks like to be a good leader. Saul was not a godly man. Saul was not a good leader. What tasks or roles or responsibilities has God given to you? Are you ignoring them, running from them, hiding from them, hiding from everyone that knows that you should be doing them? Or are you humbly accepting them and striving with all of your might to carry them out? Not for yourself, not even, 
necessarily just for the good of the people in the church, but for the glory of God. Are you doing them? Final question for chapter 10. How do the people respond to Saul's selection? Now, you would think that after Samuel's introduction, this scathing rebuke of the people, they would at least be a little tepid in their response, at least feel a little bit like they'd done something wrong, maybe even slightly conflicted about this new king. Nope. (laughs) They're elated. They're overjoyed. And they shout out, long live the king. Look, they don't even know who this guy is. They're looking around and like, who is this guy? Saul? Where is he? Who is this guy? And now they're already rejoicing that he's the king because all they can see is that he's a head taller than everyone else. That's the only thing most people even know about him. Interestingly, the people described as worthless men are the ones who actually see through Saul's facade here. They're the ones who say, how can this man save us? Now, what I think is so interesting about that statement is that they were certainly talking about Saul's being incapable of fighting off the Philistines and the other enemies that the that were existing in the region. I, that's definitely what they're talking about. This, who is this guy who's going to fight our battles for us? But I think there's another reason why this is placed at the closing of our text this morning. Look back up to verse 19 one more time. This is what God said to the people. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses and who have said, you have said to him, set a king over us. Once again, Israel did have a king prior to Saul. Not an earthly king, but a heavenly one. They had a savior king, and they rejected him. Saul is going to prove to be a terrible substitute for God. There is no king that can save you except the Lord. Physically, nationally, but spiritually as well. There is no one that can save you but the Lord. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we just ask that today as we've come to this text, this text that is full and riddled with challenging things, we just ask, Lord, you would help us to cut through those things and get to the heart and truly understand, yes, Jesus is a good king. And yes, Saul was a bad king. We can trust Jesus as our king. And Lord, I pray if there is anyone here in the room who came here today as an unbeliever, someone who has not followed Jesus Christ or trusted him, or repented of their sin, Lord, I pray that today you would give them a new heart of salvation, that you would circumcise their heart, that you would make them a new creation, that you would give them the gifts of faith and repentance. Lord, we ask that indeed you would transform them today by the grace of God. Please save them. And Lord, we pray for those of us who do know you and who love you, We ask, Lord, that we would not run from the things you have called us to do, but that we would serve the Lord Jesus Christ with every fiber of our being, that we would not run away from the challenging, difficult, and often mundane things that you have called us to do. Lord, it's easy sometimes to do the big things, the flashy things, the observable things. The harder things are the consistent things, the the daily things. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful in all that we are called to do that we would not run like Saul, but they would, we would instead accept humbly whatever you have given us to do, and that we would do it all for the glory of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.